0: that's a tough act to follow, but I'm going to try. (laughs) As I said, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm so glad you're here. We're starting a new series today, and I love it when we start a new series. Um, However, for those of you who've heard me preach before, you know that context is king, that if you're going to understand the Word of God, you've got to understand the context of who delivered that Word and where it was delivered and what they were addressing. So usually the... The first sermon of every series is more like a history lesson, uh, but, but we'll get through it today. We're going to look at what are called the pastoral letters, which basically is First and 2 Timothy and Titus. The, the year is 64 AD. Paul is near his death. He's a missionary. His life mission is coming to a close. And much like Jesus, he realizes he's leaving and he's got to hand this mission to someone else. Just as Jesus prepared and directed and instructed and encouraged his disciples, Paul is going to do the same thing in these pastoral letters. The key to understanding these letters, like every book of the Bible, is context. We need to set the background and events that were occurring in the first century so that we can effectively understand the meaning and the application of the text. One of the things I tell people all the time is when you pick up John and then you switch over and pick up Titus or Timothy, you've just completely changed context. The scriptures are true, but they're true within the context of each of those books. Now, history and cultural understanding are critical. We have to understand what the text meant in the first century before we can figure out how to apply it to our lives. These three letters are unique, they're pastoral letters. You may well, what does that mean exactly? Well, what it means, if you wanted to put it in context today, Paul and Timothy and Titus ran a church consulting business. They didn't see themselves as pastors of these churches. Their primary function was not to shepherd the flock. Their primary function was to guide and instruct those who would be called to shepherd the flock. Their role, as they saw it, was to establish structure and to train the leaders. Timothy and Titus would be Paul's envoys to, to address problems that required what was called apostolic authority. In other words, our church is facing an issue. We need to know what the apostles say we should do. In the face of false teaching, Timothy and Titus were given authority to correct it. And so through these ministries, we've said the ministry cannot be evaluated like they are modern pastors. They're not. They're under the command of Paul. They're there to teach the leaders how to lead the church. They didn't focus on shepherding the flock. This is going to be really important when we get later in this series and we start looking at some of the instructions they give to the church. They knew that they were moving on and they had to leave leaders behind them. That being said, the church needed a a personal touch. It needed a pastor to watch over them. It needed people, elders and leaders to guide them. So for example, Timothy is gonna be left at Ephesus to establish and grow the leadership of that church. Paul's gonna guide him remotely uh, through letters. The relationship is short-term. Perhaps the most unique feature of these letters, when we read these letters, when we get into these letters, what we're gonna see is how much Paul focused not on what their leaders said, but their actual lives, how they live their lives. Paul knew that it would be hypocritical for people to tell people to follow Jesus and then not act like Jesus. Let me repeat that. It would be hypocritical for you, me, anybody to say we follow Jesus and then act like we don't. Nothing is more detrimental to the advancement of the message of Jesus than a bunch of people who claim to follow him and then live lives that are completely distant from him. The world just can't understand how you could do that. Christians were not only to live lives of inner holiness, but they were in many ways to direct to the audience of moral superiority. We are going to hold ourselves pure because Jesus was pure. And in these letters, we're going to see Paul instruct Timothy much like we saw in James before. He's going to say, look, sound faith expresses itself in action. When people look at how you live, they'll know what your faith is. So Timothy is his protege. It's his younger pastor. It's a person that he's identified. So so who is this Timothy? Well, we know Timothy is a native of Lystra in Phrygia. That's in Turkey. So let's take a look at that. Paul is on his missionary journey, happens to be the third one. And the towns we're going to focus on is Lystra. If you see it there on the map, that's where Timothy is from. And then Ephesus is over there on the coast. It's a port city. And that's what we're going to focus on mostly today. This entire passage, these entire books play out in those two cities for the most part. So let's open God's word and look at Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy. What do we know about Timothy? Well, he's the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer In other words, a Jewish person who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and his father was Greek. That's unusual, but okay. He was spoken well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. His father is Greek. Now, one of the things I think is really important to understand is God never waste the circumstances of your life to position you to do what he's called you to do. Every single one of us has a call on our life by God to do something. It's just a matter of whether we accept that and follow it. This man was uniquely Jewish and uniquely Greek. A huge advantage to taking the gospel to a bunch of Greek people. Okay. His father is Greek. We're gonna see in 2 Timothy, his mother was named Eunice. His grandmother was Lois and they were godly Jewish women who were also believers in Jesus. It's through the influence of these two women that this Greek young man learned Hebrew scriptures as a child. He's got a very unique background. He he grew up Jewish, but he's also fully Greek. He was converted during Paul's first trip to this location. Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. It was likely that Timothy responded to Paul's message during his first missionary journey. Let's look at that, Acts 14. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them. So Paul has gone to Timothy's hometown. Timothy is a young man. He's trying to figure out if this gospel message is real or not. He goes there and he hears this man, Paul, teach for the first time. And when Paul starts teaching, the, the community begins to be split. A lot of the, the Jewish people are like, this man's talking nonsense. A lot of the other believers are like, no, Jesus is the Messiah. And so they begin to want to silence him. The people from other towns came to Leicester and Derby and to the surrounding country, and they continued to preach the gospel. Perhaps a key factor in Timothy choosing to follow Paul and Jesus was what happened next. His hometown, this preacher came through, look at what his hometown did. Jews came from Antioch to Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he's dead. So Paul goes to this city, young Timothy is looking at him, trying to figure out, is this guy real or not? Is his Messiah real or not? And what happens to this man is the town people stone him and they think he's dead, so they leave him outside the city. Verse 20, but when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples get this after he gets stoned and left for dead he goes to another place and teaches and guess what he does next he comes right back to teach again nobody does that in their own power that's through the power of god he gets there and it says they return to lystra iconium and antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith And say that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. It is a powerful message for a non-believer to watch a Christian walk through a tough trial. When a Christian walks through a tough trial and stands there and says, I'm still following Jesus. I don't care what you do to me. I don't care what happens to me. I'm following Jesus. When you say that, you're telling the entire world the power of the relationship you have with Christ. And when they appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Now at the beginning of the second missionary journey, so the first missionary journey, it looks like Timothy is converted to Christ. Paul goes on. Timothy is left there in this new church. The town is very divided. There's a lot of hostility. He stays there. And then Paul comes through a second time. And in this time, Paul looks at this young man and says, I want you to follow me. I want you to come with me. Let's look at that. Acts 16. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they knew his father was Greek. What does that mean? Well, what happened was Paul looks at him and he goes, man, you know the scriptures, your heart's sold out for God. There's only one problem from my perspective. And that is that you're, you're Greek. You're not Jewish. You know the Jewish scriptures. Your mom is Jewish, but your father's Greek. We're about to go to a bunch of Jewish people. And the first question they're going to ask is, is he circumcised? Is he one of us? So let me give you this picture to show you what Timothy's made of. Timothy is chosen to follow Paul. And the first thing Paul says is, oh, by the way, there's this little thing we got to take care of before we leave town. You want to talk about commitment. Commitment. I don't want to make too much of a joke of it, but Timothy is committed. Yeah. It says as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them observance, of the decisions that have been reached by the apostles. So church was strengthened in faith and the increase in number. Paul's going around on his second journey, church to church, revisiting the ones he's seen before, looking at how they're doing, continuing to move that way. Since they would be preaching to Jews, Paul had Timothy circumcised. The leadership of the church lays hands on him and sends him off, and they begin moving through places that we now know as Philippi and Thessalonica, they begin to write letters. Relatively quickly, Paul begins to use Timothy as his lead envoy, leaving him in places. Paul would go, and he'd say, okay, I'm going to keep going. You stay here and build up the leaders, and then we'll catch up later. That's the relationship he had with Timothy. It's an incredibly powerful validation of Timothy's faith at such a young age to be given such responsibility. Apparently he remains in Thessalonica and then he joins Paul and Silas later. He becomes a a liaison to the church in Corinth where we get Corinthians, the church in Thessalonica where we get Thessalonians. 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Paul says, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ and teach them everywhere at every church. Later in his letter to Corinthians, Paul would say this, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Very early in this relationship, Paul begins to see Timothy as a son. He begins to look at him as a son. He wants to make sure that people treat him well. He wants to make sure he's given responsibility. He wants to make sure that they understand the relationship Paul has with them. Paul will later call him his spiritual son. Okay, I, get a, I have a sense of what this feels like. When you get to be an old pastor like me, one of the things that happens is you begin to see younger pastors stepping up. You begin to see people who come out of your own youth group, for instance, and become a family pastor. You begin to look at the future and you say, who are we going to hand this to? Who are we going to keep doing? How's this church going to invest in the future? Paul is that way. He's towards the end of his life. He's got to pour into someone and Timothy is the person that God has chosen. Now, Timothy remains in Macedonia. Paul goes to Corinth. Paul writes his letter to the Romans. We'll get into all this. Um, And we know that uh, after that, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and go to Jerusalem. And he says, after that, I'm going to Rome. Paul wants to go to Rome. Why? Because it's the center of everything. It's the big city. If you can convince people in Rome to follow Jesus, they'll take that to the world. He says, having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy, he himself stayed in Asia. Another example where Paul goes off and he leaves Timothy behind. The book of Romans, Timothy is with Paul when he writes Romans because Paul tells him, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you. And then we find in Acts 19 that Timothy is sent specifically to the church at Ephesus. That's going to be important to us because the two letters we're going to review later all happened at Ephesus. Okay, the, the background of this entire story, you have to understand the city of Ephesus. It is the epicenter. I made that up. But it's important to understand what's going on in that city before you can understand what these letters are about. Ephesus, I was blessed to be there about a year ago now. Um, toured the ruins, took a look, Tammy and I went there and looked at it, I walked among the ruins. Ephesus is a huge port city. One of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. A political, religious, and commercial center in Asia Minor. If you look at the map, there's, there's a big coliseum. That courtyard there is a place we're going to read about later where they um, struggled with um, Paul and them interfering with their sale of idols. The water the beach is down here on the left. It's a port city. They come up to the cathedral, but way up on top up there, you see that sort of shrine up on top? That's a shrine to the uh, goddess uh, Artemis, or we know as Diana, the fertility goddess. And that'll play a role in this entire series. The city also hosts one of the largest libraries at the time. Um, It's an impressive city. Ephesus and its inhabitants are mentioned more than 20 times in the New Testament. If you want to understand this true story you got to understand this city it's particularly unique and it's very unique for instance from Corinth or Thessalonica okay so we're going to look at Ephesus this time around it's in western Asia it has a seaport and it's between two rivers so ships could come in there and then they could split and go down the two rivers to the rest of the world had excellent river valleys flourished as a commercial center had great uh, fields and could produce crops Due to the accumulation of silt in the river, eventually the city that you look at today is now five miles inland because silt is filled in the water. But at Jesus' time, it was very much a port city. Under the Romans, Ephesus exploded. It became an epicenter of knowledge, of information. At the time of Paul, it was the fourth largest city in the world. Population estimated at 250,000 people. We always have this idea that these cities are like little bitty cities with 100, 250,000 people, the fourth largest city in the world, a port city. People were coming in from all over the world, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of religions, all kinds of beliefs coming through that city going to the Roman Empire. During the reign of Hadrian, uh, the emperor, Ephesus was designated as the capital of this entire area. This is a big city. This is an important city. It's a warm-up city for Rome. All types of faiths, cultures, beliefs, myths flow through this town from all over the world. People brought stuff from all over the world, spices, and with it, they brought their religions, their faiths, and their beliefs. However, the greatest worship in Ephesus was towards Artemis, Diana, most famous statue is in the city of Ephesus, the temple keeper for Artemis. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Romans called her Diana. Temple ceremonies were carried out by priests who were eunuchs and priestesses who were virgins. They conducted daily ceremonies and gifts were brought by worshipers. They often would buy these idols. I'll show you a picture of them in a minute. And they'd take them to the temple and offer them to Diana. May 25th was the big event of the year. It was the annual festival where numerous statues, numerous things were carried out in honor of this this deity. The amphitheater in Ephesus became a huge place for celebration and music and dancing and drama. It was a huge celebration to honor their, their God. Often images of Artemis were made out of silver and stone. The image of Artemis always included a lot of eggs and a lot of breasts because she's a fertility goddess. Many religions were studied and practiced in Ephesus, but Artemis was by far the most important. Also, as a port city, Ephesus was unique in that it housed one of the greatest libraries of the world at that time. While many religions are studied and practiced, this is the remnant of a library. It was two stories. That's the front part. Uh, pretty amazing place to walk around. The city of Corinth, which is not too far away, I've always said it's like the city gone wild. It's like Las Vegas. Ephesus is more like Harvard. Okay. When you read Corinthians, he's talking to Las Vegas. When you read Ephesus, he's talking to Harvard. Okay. See the difference? So Ephesus was more sophisticated. It was more educated. It was more refined. It had theaters. It was a place where new thoughts were to be embraced and discussed. It's an important world shaping decisions are made. It was in Ephesus the next generation of great minds were trained, a place where it could send these enlightened, trained people all over the world town was the hotspot of everything in many ways. It was the Rome of Macedonia. A quarter of a million people lived there, but millions traveled through there. Paul knew if he could create a, a group of believers at Ephesus, if he could change this town, he could maybe change the world, and that would take him to Rome. Paul brought the message of Christ to this pagan but very sophisticated city. The church there was started during the second journey. The word Ephesus means desirable. and It certainly is. When you go there, it is a beautiful place. Right on the water, right on the coast. The weather's incredible. It's an absolutely beautiful place. Paul would stay there for two years. He'd begin to develop the church there. He would lead the church during his second missionary journey. He stayed there for two years to help them build this church. Acts 19, Paul passed through the inland countries and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what were you baptized? He said, into John's baptism. That's the baptism of turning from your sins and preparing for the Messiah. And Paul said, John baptized the water of repentance telling people to believe in the one who is to come after them, that's Jesus. And Paul said, John baptized with repentance. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So don't miss the facts we just saw. There happened to be, oh, about 12 of them. Where have we heard 12 before, receive the power of the Spirit, change the world? Oh yeah, those were the disciples. The Spirit falls upon them. They stay in that city. For three months, Paul is in the synagogue boldly teaching the truth of the Word of God. A few weeks ago, we saw what happened in our Luke study when Jesus went to his hometown and did the same thing. But when he... Some became stubborn and continued in unbelief. So Paul is teaching about Jesus, and some of the Jewish people were in the synagogue are saying, no, he's not the Messiah. This man's false. He's a liar. For he withdrew from them and took disciples with him and reasoned daily in the hall of Tyrannus, which is right across the street. So what happens is they're in the synagogue, and they get kicked out of the synagogue, and Paul's like, oh, okay. So they basically walk out, Him and his 12 people, and they go across the street, almost next door, to what was called the Hall of Tyrannus. Why is that important? Well, the synagogue was for Jewish people. The Hall of Tyrannus was where everybody discussed everything. You see another pattern. I talk about all the patterns in the Bible. Paul, like Jesus, went to the Jewish people first. When they didn't allow him in the synagogue anymore, then he goes to the Gentiles. You see that in almost every city that Paul goes to. So now they've kicked him out. Fortunately, they didn't stone him this time. They kicked him out and they moved him. For two and a half years, so that the residents of Asia, let's get this, all the residents of Asia, what does that mean? All. Go back to the Greek, it means all. 250,000 people heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. If he'd have stayed in the synagogue, it would have been a small number of Jewish people. We're in in Greek land. But because he was moved out, because he was forced to move out, the gospel exploded. Another pattern we see in scriptures over and over and over. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Jewish high priests named Sevo were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them mastered, all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Look at the impact that God allowed Paul to have in Ephesus. Okay, so this is a big city. Remember, listen to this. And a man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, and fled out naked. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. In other words, Jesus just conquered a crazy demonic dude. All of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. In other words, they saw what happened to this guy. They're like, look, we've been doing the same thing. We got to get, we, no, we don't want to do this anymore. We've been doing pagan demonic things. What do we do? We want to turn to Jesus. And a number of those who practiced magic art brought their books together and burned them inside of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of books. So picture it. In front of one of the largest libraries in one of the most sophisticated cities in the world that follows Artemis the pagan and many other religions that are pagan, they burned their books and said, we're turning to Jesus. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Look at what God is doing in this city. The entire city begins to turn to Jesus. That's incredible when you think about it. Even more incredible when you realize the culture and pagan influences that were going on in Ephesus. May 25th, each year, the goddess celebrated Artemis. It was a huge market day for the merchants. There was a market, and this is basically the center of the market, and each of those were little shops as people would walk around, and they sold essentially one thing, Artemis idols, Artemis trinkets. You think Disney perfected the junk gift stuff? No, it was done here first. (laughs) Romans nailed that a long time ago. We go back to God's word. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, concerning the teachings of Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and the workmen in similar trades. He says, "Men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. In other words, we're making all all these fake idols. This is where we make our money. Almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded to turn away. Saying that these are gods made with hands, not real gods. And there's not danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. That she may even be disposed for her magnificence, she in whom all of Asia and the world worship. Can you, I mean, don't miss what's happening here. Paul And 12 of his people and some new believers have gone into a city of 250,000 people and shut down their false teachings, their false idols. You think you can't do anything as a church? Look at what they did. The town of the crowd said, Men of Ephesus. Who is there who does not know the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. They believe that she actually fell there from the sky. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you brought these men here. They're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Notice that. The men of God did not blast Artemis or the believers. Instead, they showed them a better way. They weren't disrespectful. They didn't put them down for believing in this. They just showed them a better way. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have complained against anyone, the courts are open as are the proconsul. let them take charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify the commotion. And when he said these things, they dismissed the assembly. So so what he's saying is, look, these men, they've been with us for two years. They live reputable, moral, upstanding lives. They've respected you. You need to respect them. Yes, you disagree, but you need to respect them. It is here that Paul leaves Timothy as his envoy in Ephesus. So all this has gone on and now Paul goes, okay, have a great time, manage this church, I'm out of here. It is soon after this that Paul's first letter to Timothy arrives. We'll talk about that next week. Paul says he urged Timothy to stay at Ephesus while he went to Macedonia. And then the third missionary journey begins. The reason is to instruct Timothy how to manage the church in Paul's absence. Timothy is still quite young. Paul spent two to three years in Ephesus. So the best date for the first letter of Timothy is probably between 56 and 57 AD. So he gets his first letter. So so understanding all that's gone on in Ephesus, Paul leading the church while he's there. And he leaves Timothy, and then very shortly after that, he starts telling Timothy how to survive, how to lead the church in that circumstance. Timothy is not handed a softball here. Yeah, there's a lot of believers. Yes, there's a lot of people. Yes, the way is moving through the city. But the problem is there's a lot of people against it as well, including every shopkeeper, and they've been rioting in the streets about this. Paul will eventually come back to this city. So he leaves Timothy there. Timothy manages the church. Timothy gets two letters from him. In the meantime, there's a letter from Paul called the book of Ephesians that's written to those who are there But then at one point Paul comes back and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Here's what happens, Acts 20. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Notice something here the opposition that Paul felt in Ephesus was coming from the Jewish people. He says, look, they they treated, there's not a lot of indication other than the riot and those sorts of things that the the pagan Gentiles were causing an enormous amount of problem. They decided to just let this play out. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value or preciousness to myself, if I may only finish my course in ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul is headed back to Jerusalem. He knows this is the end. Something's going to happen there. The Spirit's already forewarned him. This is not going to be good. But on his way back to Jerusalem, he says, you know what, I wanna stop by and see the elders of Ephesus. I wanna see these people. This was essentially my church for two years. I wanna talk to them before I go back to Jerusalem. Now behold, I know that none of among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Okay, Paul's telling them, here's why I really came. Yeah, I wanted to see you, but here's why I really came. You see, I know I'll never see you again. This is the last time. I'm going to Jerusalem, and it's not good for me. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. In other words, I go with with a heavy heart, but with a satisfied one. I preach the entire word of God. I didn't back down from it. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock, he tells the elders. In which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now notice, he's not telling this to Timothy. He's telling this to the elders of the church that Timothy established there. Again, Timothy and Paul are consultants. Now these are the leaders of that church. Here's what he wants them to know. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul's like, look, I know two things. I know two things from the Holy Spirit. One, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'll never see you again. Second, after I leave here, there are going to be people not from outside the church, but from within the church. And they're going to look like believers. And they're going to look like sheep, but they're wolves. They're there to destroy and you've got to be on guard for them. You've got to be able to test them. You've got to be able to watch what happens to this church because I'm telling you, the attack is coming. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I have not ceased night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In other words, Paul's going, look, I'm an old man. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm not going to survive. I've got to trust this to somebody. I'm trusting it to you. I'm going to put it in God's hands, and I'm going to trust that he's going to work through you like he worked through me. And I'm going to give this to you, and I'm going to ask you to just stay focused, stay attentive. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Paul will eventually leave Jerusalem and be arrested, but as a Roman citizen, he'll demand trial in Rome, and he'll eventually get to Rome, where he will be imprisoned. And during that imprisonment, he will write Timothy a second letter about how to manage Ephesus. Second Timothy is written by Paul in prison in difficult circumstances. It was definitely written after his other prison letters, Colossians and Ephesians. It's much darker than the first letter to, to Timothy. We're going to see that. Paul is very much, it's a darker letter. He knows the end is very near. He, therefore, 2 Timothy is probably the last letter that Paul ever wrote to anybody. So in a short time, the church at Ephesus is going to receive three letters. Two letters addressed to Timothy and one to the church at Ephesus. First Timothy is written before Paul was in prison. Then Ephesus or Ephesians. The second letter was written by Paul in prison in Rome 62 to 64 AD, somewhere in there. So about six, le- six years between the two letters, and a lot happens between them. So if you're going to understand this, these letters, there's several things you have to understand. You have to understand Ephesus. You have to understand what was really going on there. You have to understand that they worshipped Artemis, that there was conflict in the the streets with the people who worshipped Artemis, but there was also significant conflict within the synagogues from the Jewish people who said Jesus was not the Messiah. And Paul was there, and a riot developed. They changed the town so much, nobody wanted to buy idols anymore, and the merchants are going under. And Paul leaves that to his protege, and he goes off, and within a short time, three to four years, he now knows his journey is ending. He commends them of their faith and love. They're doing, they're passionate about sharing the love of Christ. Paul commends them in Ephesians. Peace to be the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all who love our Lord Christ with love that is incorruptible. Paul writes to the Ephesians and he tells them, man, you guys are doing it. You're doing it. You're following Jesus. You're in a tough time, but you're doing it. Now there's more to think about with the city of Ephesus if you happen to be Catholic or grew up Catholic. Most Catholics believe that after Paul and after Timothy that John came to stay in Ephesus and live there Uh, and that when he was exiled to Patmos to write Revelation that he came from Ephesus to there. In fact because John was there the Catholics will tell you that Mary must have been there because Jesus entrusted Mary to John's care. So outside the city of Ephesus, there is a Catholic um, uh, uh, Catholic uh, shrine, perhaps, uh, a designated space where they say Mary lived, and there's water that flows through there, and you can get that holy water, and you can drink it and do what you need to do. But the point is, is that uh, while the Catholics believe that, and it very well could be true, it's not really in Scripture. So we're just going to say that, yeah, John went to... Uh, We know he went to uh, write the book of Revelation from an island offshore, but we don't know for sure that he ever was leader of this church, although a lot of people believe it based on what the Catholics have said. Uh, We don't know, so we're just going to stay neutral on it. Um, More importantly to the Catholics, because they believe Mary was there, uh, this place held a much higher regard, and people pilgrimaged there from all over the world. When we were there, there were hundreds of people Uh, who wanted to go to that temple, and they were having um, uh, Catholic services there. So Paul warns them, wolves are coming. They're going to attack the church. This was probably the most effective Christian church in one of the biggest cities of the world, one of the greatest learning centers of the world. Paul warned them, wolves are coming from within. They're going to destroy. Be on guard. So how did this church do? What happened? Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's talking to the Ephesians. I know your work, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. In other words, Jesus is telling, look, you did it. People came within your church, false prophets, not outside the church, within the church, and they presented lies and you caught them. You were on guard, you watched them. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you've not grown weary. In other words, you're doing it. You're, You're guarding the church. You're doing what Paul asked you to do. But I have this against you, he says, that you've abandoned the love you had at first remember therefore where you've fallen repent and do the works you did at first if not I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent yet this you have you hate the work of the Nicolaitans which I also hate who were the Nicolaitans? they were the people that said the church should look like the culture they believed that the church should do everything it can to reflect the culture it was in Jesus says he hates that The church should never look like its culture. We should be set apart. We should be different. We should be living different lives. We should have different divorce rates. We should have different plans and morals and standards because we follow Jesus, and that's what he did. The Nicolaitans said, no, here's what we'll do. We'll make the church look like the culture, then everybody will come. Look around, people. That's what's happening. Jesus hates the Nicolaitans. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, he says. To the one who conquers, I'll grant the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Under the weight of immoral and a pagan-filled culture, the church at Ephesus maintained the letter of the law, but they missed the spirit of the law. You see, it, it's not enough for us to just do what Jesus said. We're supposed to have his heart for people. It's not just enough to come in here and let me teach you what the word of God says. Our heart has to break for people who are suffering. Our heart has to be looking for people who are spiritually poor, people who are physically poor, people that the world has turned away. The church has gotta be there for them. That's what we do. And so when he looks at this church, he says, look, you're watching for false teaching. You're doing all those things and that's fantastic, but I thought you loved me. I thought in your heart of hearts you loved me and you've lost your first love and you got to get back to it. See, they'd lost their passion to serve Jesus the way they used to. Many of us have that problem. We become frozen, chosen behind stained glass like a world desperate for him is asking for help. We decide it's easier to look like the culture than to set ourselves apart and do what Jesus told us to do. Their actions showed they loved Christ, but their hearts weren't all in. See, it doesn't matter what you do here at this church. Whatever you do, whether you're serving, whether you're in the cafe, whether you're serving here on the worship team, it doesn't matter what you're actually doing. God's just looking at your heart. Do you love me? (laughs) Are you serving here because you love me or because you think it makes you look good? Are you serving here because you love me or because you get something from it? And it doesn't just happen in the church. When you walk out of this building, are you loving the people around you because you love me? Do you even see them? Every person you lock eyes with, Jesus died for. They're waiting for someone to bring them the love of Christ into their dark world. They're worshiping false gods just like Artemis, doesn't matter which one it is, and you have the answer. And Jesus just says it's not enough to know, you have to have a heart to want to share. So, how did this church turn out, you may ask yourself? What happened to this powerful church at Ephesus? Well, I wanna show you. Uh, Along one of the major walkways in Ephesus, you get to this place. And, And the way they built their place was they had a business of some sort on the bottom and then they lived up above, okay? And usually the bottom was made of stone, up above was made of wood, so that's why you don't see much up above here. But we come to this place, this place is unique. You can't see it on the stones yet, but let's just keep going, let's go to the next slide. As you begin to look, you can almost see the faint outline. I'll show you a better picture of a cross. This particular home has all sorts of Christian symbols and crosses in the actual woodwork, in the actual stonework. Okay, if you look at this one, you look at it and you're like, oh, that's interesting. But then you look at the next picture, there's a cross in the center. When you look at this particular place, there's Christian symbols all over it. Okay, this is likely a place of the early church. It's not there anymore. What happened to the church at Ephesus? It's not there anymore. What happens when you go to Ephesus today? It's in Turkey, it's 98% Muslim. Can't find Christians there. It's not a port city anymore. It's not an important city other than tourism. All the Christians come there. We walk around the rubble. Isn't this wonderful? We're at Ephesus, no. It'd be wonderful if you walked into a church that was thriving and showing people Jesus. The story of Ephesus is that despite Paul, despite Timothy, despite perhaps John, these people lost their first love. And now their church doesn't exist. And Jesus says, I'll remove your lampstand. Guess what he did? He removed their lampstand. What's the message for us? we better get busy loving people. We better get busy loving people. It's good that we teach truth. It's good that I come up here and tell you things. But if your heart doesn't begin to love people, we've done nothing. Jesus says, apart from me, you do nothing. It is not enough to know the word of God. You have to actually do the word of God. We're going to look at two letters written to Timothy by Paul to this particular place. Timothy is Paul's envoy. Now that we understand where Timothy is and what's happened there, the letters will make a lot more sense to us when we begin to open them next week. As I said, First Timothy was written around 57 AD. Then the congregation got the book of Ephesus, or Ephesians we call it. And then about three or four years later, in 63 or 64 AD, Timothy gets the second and last letter of Paul. We're going to begin studying 1 Timothy next week. I want to encourage you to look at these stories in the Bible this week. I want to encourage you to go back and look at the sermon again this week. Focus on the two letters to Timothy. Focus on the book of Ephesians. And focus on Acts chapter 16 through 20. That's where all this picture comes together. You see, one of the problems we have when we study the Bible is we tend to look at everything separately. Oh, I'm in Acts now. So I'm studying the beginning of the church. Okay, well now I'm over in Timothy. So I'm reading this letter about stuff, about the church to Timothy. Oh, I'm over here reading about Ephesians. We have to bring them all together. They were all written in the same context. They were all written for the same purposes. When you understand the culture and content of what you're reading, the Bible begins to open up. Okay, without that, you don't see a difference between Corinth and Ephesus. Okay, now if I told you, hey, I run a church in the middle of Las Vegas. You would go, whoa. Whoa, okay. Say to the church in Las Vegas, blah, blah, blah. And then I tell you, no, I actually run a church at the largest Christian university in the world. Oh, okay. My advice to that group might be different, right? Yet when we read the Bible, we read Corinthians and Ephesians the same. And the answer is they are true, but the letter was written to each of those congregations. What's facing the people at Corinth is different than what was facing the people at Ephesus. As a result, we have to be careful when we yank a scripture that's intended at Ephesus and pull it over and try to apply it to Corinth or to the entire church as a whole unless the scriptures tell us to do that. We're going to walk through that with 1 Timothy because he's going to have some very interesting things to say about leadership and about women in the church and, and all kinds of roles in the church and we're going to look at each other and go, what? And you're going to go, yeah, that's what it says. And the big question is going to be is does that apply to all churches of all time or does that apply to the church at Ephesus? And we'll talk about that as we go. Paul had some incredible things he's going to teach Timothy through his writings and God has a great deal to teach us. You see, our church is looking to the future and investing in future Timothys. You see, I don't know how to explain this to you, but there's a huge burden on me to make sure this doesn't stop. To make sure that whatever day God decides to silence me as a teacher, or y'all get tired of really long sermons, or whatever, that there's somebody to pick it up and hand it to. I believe the only thing that got Paul through the prisons was that he knew he had Timothy and Titus and others who would carry on after him. And you may ask yourself, why did he have those people? For one, well, two reasons. God chose them. Second, he invested in them. Our church is looking to the future and investing in one of my Timothys. During this series, we're going to ordain Grayson as our family pastor. It's during this series that we're going to have to look to the future as a church and say, are we willing to invest in this place still being here 20 years from now? Are we willing to invest to make sure that whatever happens moves on? I don't know about you, but I'm 62 years old. I could preach as long as God lets me preach. But here's one thing I know for sure. Within the next 40 years, I'm meeting Jesus. He's either going to come back or I'm going to die and be in front of him. It's not like you have all these years. All of us are going to meet him within the next 80 years probably, depending on how old you are. I want to be able to look at him and go, look at our church. Look at how they love you. Look at how they care about people. Look at how they care for people. The world is overlooked. Look at how they didn't invest in fancy buildings and all those kind of things. They invested in missionaries. And look at how they serve people. Look at how they went out in their communities and became Christians and lived different moral lives. And look, God, how much they love you. That's what I want to be able to tell them. That's what this series is about. Because here's the deal: every one of you is a believer in Christ needs to have a Barnabas, a Silas, and a Timothy. You need to have someone that is ahead of you on the path and can walk you and guide you through what's happening. You need to have somebody alongside of you, like Silas, who's in the mission with you, sharing with you the same spiritual growth you're in. And then you need to have somebody that you're pouring into. You need to find your Timothys. Okay, and you may go, well, I don't have anything to tell them. Really? I sat down with a new believer two months ago and had to show him how to find the book of John in the Bible. Think you could do that? There's always people that need to be mentored. always people that need to be taught. That's what this series is going to be about. I don't want us to get to the point where this was a great story that happened once. I don't want people to tear up this place and find Christian trinkets. Little stones with crosses on them. Maybe some... uh, cars out in the parking lot that are so old and they still have the Christian racing sign on them the fish have you ever seen one of those cars driving slow no they're in a hurry anyway to get to my point what happens at this church the impact we have on this community is ours okay God's already promised victory if we stay in the mission if we do what he asks us to do So in this series, we're going to look at what Paul had to say to this young man who would pick up the mantle and carry on the church. And in the same time, he's speaking to us as well. So I want to ask you to invite your friends, your family, come back next week. We're going to pick up the book of 1 Timothy and begin to work our way through it. I don't know how long this is going to take, as you know. We're just going to start and go. But hopefully after today, I've at least given you something to think about about how this letter fits into the context of Scripture. And why this church is so important, because I don't know if you noticed it or not, but we live in an area of about 250,000 people. We have some fancy libraries and places and theaters and things. We have a very small church. We have a lot of churches who are Nicolaitans, who are doing what the world wants to do. And we've been put in this place for this time. And our sign outside says that we're basically a bunch of misfits who are being transformed by the word of God. And through that process, you transform the world that you're put in. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we have people who went ahead of us. We have people like Paul, Timothy, and Titus, and others who walked this path ahead of us, had left writings for us to study and learn from. God, I pray that we would begin today to look at the story of Ephesus and see our own town see our own mission and wonder what those who walk around here 2,000 years later are going to see about this church about this place and about these people at one point God this church at Ephesus shut down the marketplaces because so many people were following Jesus they didn't care about idols anymore and yet within just 5 10 15 20 years it's all gone God, I pray you find us faithful. I pray you find us set apart. I pray you find us with hearts chasing yours. And I pray that never changes as long as this place exists until you come back and even after. We ask it in Jesus' name.